Let's turn together to Luke's Gospel and chapter 11, please, and we're going to read from verse 33 to 54. Luke chapter 11, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law. Almost as if to say, Yes, I mean to. I mean to include you as well. Woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge you yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. 
When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Amen. May God help us to hear his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these words of your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are today for us your word and your light and your truth for us. By your Holy Spirit, help us to hear these words recorded by Luke and inspired by your Spirit and to see the light and joy and grace of the gospel as we listen to them. In Jesus' name, amen. While Jesus, by the midway point of all the gospels, is entering the stage of his ministry where the opposition to him was beginning to bubble up and become more and more intense. And the opposition, as we see in this example from Luke's gospel, was um, not exclusively but primarily from the religious world of his day. And it was, in part, that opposition to Jesus that we can see from his interchange with these men that he initiated and timed and knew was going to eventually boil over and lead to his crucifixion and death. And so words of truth became for these religious men not just words of warning, but words of judgment. Some of the most serious things that Jesus ever uttered are recorded in this passage. Verses uh, 49 to 51 are weighty, weighty words. The blood of all the prophets this generation will be held responsible for. My goodness me. So a religious world encountered the Lord Jesus, and there was this collision that led to his crucifixion. This is, in part, a two-sermon series. Today, looking at the passage we've just read, and the next time, I can't remember what date that is, we'll look at the following passage. And it's like looking at the dark side and then the light side, looking at the warnings and then the promises. If you cast your eye down into chapter 12, some of the most sweet and precious promises of Jesus come in those verses. But this passage, these warnings to these religious people, we can read in two ways, and should read in two different ways. We should read them in their context as warnings to these religious leaders, and therefore they become warnings to similar people through all the generations. Don't be like this, they say. But set as they are in Luke's gospel, these warnings also become something that enables us to, to rejoice in what we have been spared from whilst looking at the warnings and the judgment of God is always a solemn thing, as believers we are able to see and to sense 
My, my, God has lifted us up out of this world. He has saved us from this. Yes, don't be like this, but also look at what God has enabled us to be in the gospel. Look at what we have been liberated from. And I think it's important that we read these verses in, in both these ways this morning. Don't become religious in these ways, for it is a deadly thing to become. But do rejoice in the fact that the Holy Spirit of God, through the gospel, has joined you to the Lord Jesus and lifted you from this religious pit of darkness and uh, terrible burden and judgment. It was a common experience for me as a minister and might still be because I've agreed to conduct someone's marriage ceremony next year, but about halfway through many wedding receptions, somebody approaches, and it's usually a man, and it's usually a man with a certain bearing and professional ability, and it's usually a man of that bearing who's had too much to drink. And I can see the conversation about to unfold. I can predict it as sure as the nose is on the end of your face. And he starts by congratulating you on the service that you conducted earlier today and telling you everything you did right and so on, as if it's his world of expertise anyway. But he feels liberated to do that kind of thing. And then I can see the phrase coming, but minister, I'm not religious. And I've thought one gets many chances to uh, experiment with this conversation because it's the same every time. So I've thought sometimes to say, well, um, maybe you should think about becoming religious. And that didn't work. So then I went on to, well, neither am I. And that just shut the conversation down and it didn't go any further. That, was, that has its benefits, it has to be said. <laughs> And then the next attempt I remember making was to say, well, neither is Jesus. And that caused just a momentary pause for thought. And the assumption in our context is that there are the religious, including Christians, and there are those like my male friends at wedding receptions who are, I'm not religious. But what the Bible teaches us and what is actually true is that to be religious is the global norm. There are only a few atheists in the entire history of the globe. And the Bible's verdict on atheism is that the fool says there is no God. It's a rare condition. The vast, vast majority of the human population are religious and will worship the God of their own making with great sincerity and pursue that worship with enormous dedication. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, who were very religious men, that that's just a terrible burden for any human being to carry. And the true division 
is not between the religious, including Christianity and atheism, but between the religious, which includes 99% of humans and Christians. And Jesus, in these verses and in his introduction to the passage, Luke wants us to see that it is to compare a world of light and a world of darkness. That's the introduction, verses 33 to 36, the strange analogy that the eye is like the lamp of the body. What, what comes into us, what we, what we see in this world and how we think, that is going to either illuminate our bodies and lives or it is going to plunge us into darkness. And then he, Luke cleverly goes on to show us what a world of darkness is actually like. So let's take a look in a little bit more detail at this religious world, this dark world of burdensome guilt and decay and hypocrisy. I noted down six simple things that we can learn here from Jesus. Number one, the, the key cause of hypocrisy is a lack of personal integrity. That is the very texture of what it means to be a sinful human being, isn't it? We recognize it within our, our own hearts. The lack of consistency between our thinking and living between our attitudes to others and our attitude to self. And once the light of the gospel has enabled that, us to see that in ourselves, that hypocrisy is kind of matted in with what it means to be sinful, and the key cause of hypocrisy is a lack of personal integrity. And the religious world is a world of hypocrisy and lack of integrity. A Pharisee invited him to eat with him, and Jesus went in and reclined at the table. And the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. And before the Pharisee had even said anything, Jesus, knowing presumably what he was thinking, said, your problem is that you're obsessed with cleaning the outside of something in your religious world. But that is just hypocritical. To clean the outside while the inside remains a stagnant well of poison is just sheer nonsense. I've come to clean the inside. And if you got on with that business of cleaning the inside, your life would be very different. The key cause of hypocrisy is a lack of personal integrity. It's another very common kind of stone to throw against the church, isn't it? To say, well, I don't go to church, I'm not religious because I don't like hypocrisy. And I guess a good answer to that is, well, neither does Jesus. <laughs> and we human beings are so riddled with hypocrisy that only the gospel can enable us to take a step back and see it not only in other human beings but in ourselves, and to see it for what it is. But a religious world is a world full of authorized and approved hypocrisy. Lack of integrity sits with no one to challenge it. 
as long as the wheels of the religious show keep on turning around and around. The second thing that seems to emerge in this conversation is that the religious world has an obsession with detail, and often detail that is largely unimportant. <laughs> he turns next in his comments in verse 42 to discuss what the Pharisees know to be their giving, their practice with Christian, if you like, or religious giving. And can you picture these Pharisees, how hilarious it is to think of them going into their gardens and to measuring ten stalks of mint and making sure that one stalk is removed as their tithe, and then ten stalks of rue and each herb, carefully making sure that one-tenth of each herb is very precisely given to Almighty God. The obsession with detail knows almost no limit in this dark religious world. And the gospel is telling us the Lord has lifted us away out from such a mire, such a morass of detail that doesn't matter. Jesus says, okay, 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 you can tithe your, your herbs if you want. That's whatever. 10%, yes, give it to God. But there, there is no point in being obsessed with that, he says, that detailed giving. If you have missed the huge, big life challenges and gospel graces of the love of God and the justice of God, it is, it is literally ridiculous to become obsessed with these religious details whilst ignoring the great promises and commands of Almighty God who made you and who owns you. A third accusation is made in verses 43 to 44, and I, I guess the Pharisee who had invited the Lord Jesus into his house for a meal is recognizing to some degree at least that everything Jesus is saying is true. He hasn't invited these comments, but as they come towards him, he must have been thinking, yes, that is what I'm like. That is what I do. And the third area is this area of impressive spirituality. Verses 43 and 44, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. While to have such an impressive outward show of spirituality but not to know and love God Himself, Jesus says, is to be like walking over unmarked graves, to be like the living dead. It's a, it's a scathing critique, isn't it? Impressive spirituality belongs to the, the dark world of religious godlessness. I was at university with a doctor and, or a medical student, not yet a doctor, and he was 
I suppose, a bit of a kind of wild character, and he attended one of the most charismatic churches in the city, and he, he was, I felt, all about the impressive, all about the, the outward. There was always great claims, and he was a bit of a riot, but I always thought to myself, I really hope I never find myself in a hospital ward with this guy coming towards me as the doctor because it always seemed to be moving on from one display to the next, from one display to the next. And as it happened, when Eleanor was admitted to Rigmore Hospital in Inverness to give birth to Esther, who was the doctor on call? <laughs> but this guy, I'm not going to name him because one of you doctors might know him. And here he was walking into our room and I was praying, Lord, this, this was not meant to happen. Unfortunately, we didn't need him. But we learned that night, what struck me at the time as the most incomprehensible thing was that he had left this kind of rather wild, extreme charismatic church, and he'd become, of all things, a free Presbyterian. I thought, I can't believe it. I can't believe it's even possible. What's, has he had a mental breakdown or, you know, a split personality? But as I reflected on it and thought about it. I thought, no, what he's all about is impressive religion. And he's now just got a different set of clothes on, but it's still just all about a show of outward spirituality rather than knowing and understanding the grace of the gospel. And Jesus' words to this Pharisee seem to be cutting into that world of darkness and say, never mind what others see. Never mind what it looks like. Think rather about the God who sees you and the God who looks directly into your heart and who loves you and who extends this invitation of grace towards you. We're never told what the Pharisee said. Maybe he was speechless. We're never given a chance to hear if he responded to Jesus at all, because from the side of the room, one of the non-Pharisees, an expert in the law, grabs hold of Jesus verbally and says, you can't talk like this. When you talk like this, you're insulting us experts of the law as well. And Jesus says, I know. That's precisely the point. You're just the same. And what you're doing in your religious world is to place burdens on top of people and telling them to carry them. And it's an awful thing to do. Verse 45 and verse 46 exposes this world of false piety, doesn't it? And verses 47 to 51, the burden becomes ever more ghastly and immeasurably cruel when Jesus points out the fact that their world of religion has actually led them 
to silence the very word of God through the prophets whom they killed and persecuted. Do you remember the opening scene of the film The Mission? About that Roman Catholic person as he drags this heavy net through the forest to repay his debt. It's a very visual reminder of what we've been set free from. We don't, we can't, we needn't, we mustn't carry the burden of our guilt and shame through life. It will never get us anywhere. And Jesus is the one who, when he died, cut that rope and said, you don't need to carry any burden anymore. But all human religion, even Christianized religion, places burdens on people's shoulders and presses them down to conform to some false idea of what God is like. It is true that any of us who are Christian believers can slip into those patterns to begin to think that if I do this, if I remember that, if I add on this practice, or if I pile up the spiritual disciplines enough, then, then God will dot, dot, dot. And the gospel wants to demolish that thinking like a toddler in a Jenga tower and say, absolutely not. Christ lifts our burdens off. And then we live freely from them. And in freedom we serve the Lord Jesus and seek to honor His Father and ours. A whole generation, Jesus says, will be held accountable for the blood of the prophets. It's a terrible thing. Religion places a horrendous burden on the lives of human beings, whether it's Christianized so-called religion or some other world religion. It's all the same. It's all the same. Burdensome, dark, and deadly. And as we look into that world here in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, don't, don't, don't admire it. Don't desire it. But rejoice that I've removed you from it to live with me and my people in freedom and in grace. Finally, and perhaps worst of all, in verses 52 and 53, because you have taken away the key to knowledge you yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. It's not only yourselves who are affected by this religious darkness. You will prevent others seeing the light of the gospel. Two 19-year-old lads who'd been worshiping regularly in church recently had been unbeknown to their church leaders having a series of five-hour-long Bible studies with a, a very religious person. There's something wrong with, there's many things wrong with five-hour-long Bible studies, but 
in this particular instance, um, these two 19-year-olds had become sucked in to a way of thinking and were actually being poisoned against their own church family and were becoming increasingly convinced that everything in their living church family that they had loved and enjoyed and that they'd served in was bad and that this, this world was the right world. And then uh, one of the leaders in the church smelled a rat when the two lads went off for a weekend to London and came back dressed in, uh, in church in black suits from head to toe. And they thought, what on earth is happening? Religion had taken hold of them. And now they are no longer there and they're worshipping in, the in the only true church that they can find in the whole city. It's, it's this that Jesus will not stay quiet about, that you are not only living in darkness and taking away the key to knowledge yourself, you are not content until you drag others off with you. And from that point on, Luke tells us, war was declared against Jesus. Three things just as we close. I was thinking, how do we apply all of this to our lives today? I hope I've maybe shown you because we look in the gospel text, but we see in everyday Christian life. This is not an exaggeration. Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole or in, in melodramatic terms. What he tells us at the beginning, Dr. Luke does very deliberately, there is a world of light, which is the gospel, and there is a religious world of darkness, and the two exist alongside each other and the gospel alone brings light into our hearts and souls and minds and joyfully liberates us from the darkness. That is the whole gospel metaphor, isn't it? That we have been taken from darkness to light, from death to life, from chains to freedom. It's not an exaggeration. This, this is reality. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And the the darkness is what Christ has taken upon Himself to set us free from. So don't, don't ever think yourself back into some world of darkness again. So it's not exaggeration. And the second application I thought is important. This is repeated in different ways and in different forms and with different clothes throughout human history. From the, from the very beginning, from Cain and Abel, one was religious and one loved God. One sacrifice was acceptable and one was not. Do you remember Cain and Abel? And at first reading, you think, well, why? What, what's the difference between the two? They both made a sacrifice. Why should one be so good and one be so bad? It's because one is in, in the world of light and one is in the world of darkness. And the two can look very similar, but in Cain and Abel we have the first example of religious deadliness and the living reality of worshiping God in truth. And it's happened 
all the way through church history ever since, and still goes on today, and it will never cease until the new creation comes. And so we can observe the world through the knowledge that the gospel gives us and through the right understanding of the categories that God describes. Religious darkness, gospel light. It causes us to live in a world with some level of tension because what is admired as religious diversity and described by the world as historical beauty, and indeed some religious things are very beautiful in terms of their art and their craft and their expression of God's creativity, but what is so often described as religious diversity and beauty is, as we understand it, a world of darkness and danger and death. And so we live in this world with a certain amount of tension because we are in disagreement with the most common description and analysis of the world as we see it. But then we have the words of the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and the risen Savior, to trust. And once we have seen the light that He sheds, we can actually understand reality as it is. That was the second thing. And then the third thing, don't switch off the light. Go back to the introductory sentences. If you deliberately switch off the light source, if you put the light of the gospel in a place where it is hidden in your life, if you deliberately take what you know to be light and shut your eyes to it for long enough, Luke is telling us as he uses this metaphor to introduce the woes against the Pharisees, if you do that, you will ultimately go morally bad that's just what happens. So don't switch off the light. Live in the light. Let the truths of the gospel shine into your mind and heart and into your life and into your decisions and into your homes and families and choices every day that God gives you because if you turn the light off and turn your back on what you know to be light, you will go morally black. If you cut the blood supply off to part of your body, it will decay. If you turn the light off, darkness will result. It's just what happens, Luke is telling us. And then as he tells us that, he shows us this window into this terribly dark religious world. And so he's saying, don't turn the light off to his gospel readers, whoever you are. Just turn back momentarily to Luke chapter 1, because we go out into a very religious world that's very convinced of its own arguments and truth. And this very religious world assumes that it knows best. It knows with certainty that 
All paths lead to the top of the mountain, or whatever religious expression it tends to use. All religions are the same, etc., etc., etc. The world says we know best. And Luke says here in the inspired scriptures as we have them, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he's writing for Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So when we live in a religious world and we see that the light has been turned off and everybody's rejoicing in it and saying, what a beautiful religious world we have, we think Dr. Luke says that we can know with certainty that what Jesus says about the gospel and the liberation and the, the enlightenment of the human soul is true. We can know it with certainty. I love that phrase, so that you may know. Luke's gospel was written so that you may know. Don't doubt it for these six days until you're back here worshiping God with one another. Don't doubt it. What you know, you know with certainty because God has revealed it and turned the light on. And so we live by His grace in the freedom and light and joy of the gospel until God willing next Sunday. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize, first of all, in our own hearts, all the little discrepancies and darknesses that still sit there, and we simply rejoice today that you have lifted the burden of any associated guilt and shame with all that is sinful within us, past, present, and future. And today, we rejoice to be your children, first and last and forever. For you are ours and we are yours. And together as we worship, the light of that truth warms our souls and corrects our minds. Keep us, Lord, we pray, in that light. And away in our minds and hearts from what is dark and burdensome. In Jesus' name, amen.